Grace and mercy and peace to you this morning from God our Father and from Jesus Christ our Savior who bore a cross and asked us to take up our cross and follow him. Today's a sermon about the cross and about mud. I think you know what mud is already, so we need to talk first about what the word means, the cross. I think you first think about Jesus dying on a cross, and that's true, but today that word is also used for something that's going to come into our lives too. It's connected to suffering, but it's not exactly the same thing. So the way I diagram it is like this. So if you've got a big circle around all the suffering in the whole world, that's going to hit believers and unbelievers alike. Even someone who's not a child of God is going to experience a lot of trouble in this world. Things like natural disasters or sickness or pain. A hurricane goes through and there's no distinction between those who believe in God and those who, who don't. There's a lot of suffering all because of sin in the world. Now the cross is connected to that because the cross is a subset of all the suffering and pain. The cross is the suffering that believers have because they follow Jesus Christ. So Peter, when he wrote what we heard before, he says, uh, it's not that you are just a jerk and everybody hates you. That's not really the Christian cross. Peter says, if you're a murderer or a thief or even if you're a meddlesome, gossipy busybody, and people don't like you or you receive repercussions from society, that's not the Christian cross. What is the cross? If you would divide it into two parts, it's usually one of these two things. People and the world outside of you and the devil himself are gonna try to be against you and oppose you because you follow Jesus Christ. There might be persecution from the outside. But there's another side too, and if you look at the words of Jesus, he says, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That a lot of the Christian struggle is actually an internal battle with your own sinful nature. So for example, a Christian gets, a non-Christian gets cancer and they wrestle with it, but for a Christian, it might be that you have to deny the part of yourself that wants to get angry at God and question God because that, that, that suffering's in your life, there's, there's something that's going on inside the life of, of a Christian. Jesus says that those who follow him will bear a, a cross. Now, it's fine and good to diagram it and talk about it as this abstract thing, but sometimes you don't really understand what a cross is until you see it in somebody's life. And so, for an example this morning, let's go back to the Old Testament reading and look at the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, so, if you've got a paper copy of the worship folder, go back to pages 5 and 6. Otherwise, I'll put some of the key verses up on the screen. Jeremiah bore a cross as he faithfully served his, served his Lord. Uh, a little background to him. He's living in the, 700, now the 600s into the 500s B.C., uh, just as Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. And the message God gave him was similar to the other prophets. It was a message of repentance. The people more and more had turned away from God and so God through Jeremiah was calling the people back. Don't worship Baal. Don't have my name just on your lips when you don't really mean it. God had warned through Moses that if the people abandoned him, God would allow them to be taken captive by foreign powers and that's the message of Jeremiah. Now to understand how that hit the people, you'd have to understand the political situation of Jeremiah's world. So this is the map of the world powers in the 6th century B.C. The red arrow is where Jeremiah lives, the land of Israel. 
a fairly tiny nation in the grand scheme of things, right on the edge of two big empires. Egypt is down to the southwest. The Assyrian Empire had collapsed, and so now the Babylonians were taking over. That's the green. And so if you were living in Jerusalem at Jeremiah's time, it wasn't that you were Republican or Democrat. It was either you were pro-Egypt or you were pro-Babylon. And the tough political question is, who should we make the alliance with? Because if we get it wrong, the other side is really going to hurt us. So for example, if the Babylonians are going to win and we side with Egypt, Babylonians are going to they're going to come and crush us. Same thing in reverse. If we side with the Babylonians and the Egyptians win, uh, Egyptians aren't going to like that. Who should we be allied with? So as you're thinking through all of that, let's go back now to Jeremiah chapter 38. Look at the message Jeremiah had, the reaction of the people, and how that ends up causing a cross for Jeremiah to bear. So here is 38 verse 1. I'm not going to read all the Hebrew names again, but you've got a whole bunch of, these are people in the government in Judea. They are all against Jeremiah. They hear him because Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Jeremiah's main point is we've got to turn back to the Lord. We need to repent. We need to turn back to him. And in this case, that means allowing God to, to send us some discipline into our lives by allowing the Babylonians to come and capture Jerusalem. So that God says to his people, it's going to be better for you if you surrender to the coming Babylonian army. I'm going to use that to be with you and bless you. Uh, but you need to repent. Uh, now, you can imagine how that probably came across to everybody else. Is Jeremiah pro-Egypt or is he pro-Babylon? He is. <laughs> sure sounds like he's pro-Babylon. So even though the main issue is repentance the whole thing gets politicized into Jeremiah, you're promoting the Babylonians, you are a traitor to Israel. And I worry the same thing can happen in our country too. It's so easy for everything to be politicized that the main message of the Christian church is not about this or that social issue or so many things that everyone is so on edge about. Uh, the main message of the Christian church is about sin and grace and repentance and about a savior named Jesus. That other stuff might be important too, but the danger is that people are so wrapped up in all the other stuff that the first thing that they ask us as Christians is, what do you think about this or that? And the message of Christ just gets lost. For Jeremiah, this whole section, there's nothing at all about repentance. That's what his main message was. It's all about, are you pro-Babylon or are you in favor of, of Israel? And all the people are hearing his message as, you, you sound pretty pro-Babylon, Jeremiah. So they go to the king and say this, they said to the king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. And how that last line must have just hit Jeremiah to the heart. 
Was Jeremiah trying to ruin his fellow Israelites? No, he's trying to save them. Because the big issue is not in the end, who do you ally yourself with? It's not about the armies outside the city. It's about their hearts and their relationship with God, and they have left God behind. So Jeremiah is seeking the good of the people by preaching God's word, but it comes across as Jeremiah says we should all give in and capitulate and surrender. So they say this man should be put to death because he's dissing our army. We've already had plenty of soldiers leave. Those that are left, we need them to fight. Jeremiah's got this pessimistic message that says we should all surrender. He's discouraging our army. He's discouraging the people. We should kill him. King says, He's in your hands. The king can do nothing to oppose you. What a royal cop out. Uh, He didn't side with them entirely. He didn't say, Yeah, I'm going to put Jeremiah to death on the spot. He's not going to be the one who kills Jeremiah, but he says, I'm not going to stop you. The king can do nothing to oppose you. Well, sure he could, but he's not going to. You hate Jeremiah, you want to kill him. You go ahead, I'm not going to stop you from doing that. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Melchijah. Now, to understand this, you probably should know what a cistern is. So here's a graphic of the difference between a well and a cistern. On the right is a well. That's if you dig a shaft all the way down to groundwater, and then you've got a source of water there. It's probably deeper than a cistern would be. Uh, That's what I'm used to in our area. Our water table is high enough that it's pretty easy to have a well hit it. So I've got a well under my house. I can pump water up whenever I want. A cistern is different. I actually lived in a house once that had a cistern. I think that's kind of out of style in the United States because water is so easy to come by. But where you don't have a lot of water, it's a good idea to catch all of it and use it. So a cistern is, in this picture, if you have your gutters off your roof, flow down into it, or you collect the rainwater, it's a pit in the ground that's been lined to hold water. During the rainy season, you catch as much water as you can, then you use the water during the dry season. So Jeremiah is not thrown into a well, he's put into a cistern. Here's back in that verse. Going ahead. So they took Jeremiah, put him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sank down into the mud. So you can sense what they're doing. Uh, They want to kill Jeremiah, and they want him to not be preaching or influencing the people anymore. Uh, But they're smart enough to know that if you just publicly execute somebody who's a prophet or a popular, fairly popular person, that can backfire on you. So their plan to get Jeremiah out of the way and eventually kill him, and while they're at it, why not cause him a whole lot of suffering and pain, is to throw him in a cistern. And the, the way it's described here is it's they'd used up all the water in it that they could use, and all that's left in the bottom is a layer of mud. Uh, it, it doesn't say how deep the mud was. You get the sense that Jeremiah could find solid footing at the bottom, but it seems like it was more than just a couple inches. And as I read those last words, can you imagine what that was like? Sinking down into the, into the mud. 
uh, the cold, the wet, feeling it suck around his feet and ankles, I don't know, knees, waist, how deep was he in, in the mud, and just all of a sudden the realization of what his life was going to be like. Uh, the people who put him there didn't ever plan to pull him out again. It seems like they had a plan to throw him some food every once in a while. But whenever Jeremiah eats, his table is going to be the mud. Whenever Jeremiah goes to sleep, he's going to sleep in the mud. Whenever Jeremiah needs to use the bathroom, the mud will be his toilet. And that is how Jeremiah is going to live until he dies. What a wretched existence. And you say, that, that is what God allows for his prophet? I mean, maybe if this is Jeremiah, the prophet, who, who went against God, and God said, say this, and Jeremiah said something else, and says, God says, ha, ah, Jeremiah, I'm going to throw you in the mud, but that's not, that's not the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been faithful to God. He has proclaimed God's word even when everybody else hates him for it, and the message that sent him there was the very thing God had said to say to his people, you need to repent, and to, the way to show that is by actually giving in to the Babylonians and letting them take you captive. Jeremiah was following God's will, and God still lets him end up living the rest of his life in a pit of, of mud. And you say, how is that? How is it that someone who follows God has even more suffering and pain than the guys up on top who threw him in who aren't following God? You see, there are plenty of false prophets back then too. Their message was this. Let's be pro-Egypt. We don't need to repent because God's with us and there's no way God will ever let us be conquered. So they have this message of optimism and prosperity and, and Jeremiah is stuck with the message of doom and gloom and destruction and seeming like the traitor and yet God still allows him to be the one who ends up in the, in the mud. I mean, did God really allow that? And the answer is, yeah, he did. It's not like God's out of control or didn't know what was happening. If you'd read through the Bible, you'd find that God often allows his children, even the ones who are his apostles and prophets, to bear a very heavy, a very heavy cross. And for a lot of people in this world, that doesn't make any sense. Why would there be a cross for God's people? But when you get to know the message of the Bible, you see that God is able to take the thing that seems so backwards and wrong and actually use it for good. And the greatest example is the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter says, there's no way, Jesus, that you should suffer and die. But there, as Jesus died on the cross, God used that thing of death and pain and suffering to be the greatest good that ever came to the world. Because there on the cross is where God took away all our sins, where he gave us life. The cross is a huge blessing through Jesus Christ our Savior. And God's promise is this, is that even when there is a cross in the life of his people, that's not because God hates us, it's not because God's getting back at us. In a way that's deeper than we often understand at first, the cross is a way that God actually loves us. You see, there are two misconceptions people often have with the cross. The first one is, oh, I'm never going to have one, or at least not the really bad ones. Uh, Jeremiah getting thrown in the mud, nothing like that would ever happen to me. 
but then it comes, and the cross that God allows in your life is a lot harder and heavier than you ever thought, and it's like you got punched in the gut, and the wind gets knocked out of you. And then the second misconception is this, that when you're bearing the cross, all of a sudden you think now, there's no hope, there's no way I can ever keep going like this, I should just give up, God must not care about me at all. But that's not true either. The same God who allows the cross come into the lives of Jeremiah or into our lives, he's the same God who promises to be with us through it and to give us the strength to bear up under it. And in the end, after the cross comes the crown, after the suffering comes the, comes the glory. And so in the life of Jeremiah, the way that God did that for him was through somebody else who stepped in to help. His name comes up in the next verse. We're in verse 7 and 8. There's a man named Ebed-Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal palace. We don't know much at all about him except what's in that first line, but even that gives us a little picture into his life. Uh, the name Ebed means servant and Malik means king. So the name Ebed-Melech means servant of the king, which I don't know that his mom named him that when he was, when he was born. Uh, that might be his job title because he has a government position in the government in Jerusalem, which is surprising because he's a Cushite. So for, for a map, that's where Cush is. Same map as before, but now we're south of Egypt where the Nile River begins. And what made that area different is this is now sub-Saharan Africa where people have very, very dark black skin as opposed to the brown skin of the Egyptians or the Israelites. So when the Bible talks about people from Cush, this is about as far away in the known world as anybody ever comes from. Somebody who very obviously by his appearance and everything about him says, this man is not a native Jew. He's the one who somehow has a government position in the government in Jerusalem. And you say, well, who is it that's going to stand up for Jeremiah? Isn't there somebody who's Jewish who's going to go and say, what you're doing to God's prophet isn't right? No, it's actually Ebed-Melech the Cushite. When he hears about Jeremiah, I don't know how long it was, uh, he went to the king. And if you look at that next part, I think this is significant too. He didn't try to find him in private. He purposefully went to the king when he was out in public at the city gate and called the king on the carpet for the way that he was treating Jeremiah. He said, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. The guts that must have taken for this Cushite man to stand up to the king publicly in the city gate. But maybe now you can see where King Zedekiah is caught because this has all been done in secret and now this man just made it public. What's he going to do? <laughs> uh, and here's his answer. Oh, that's horrible. Take 30 men from here with, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. And I don't know, was it, was it that King Zedekiah really had no idea what they'd done to Jeremiah? Or was being called on it publicly and having us take a stand, he couldn't publicly back up what he had done privately and now he's got to allow Jeremiah to be pulled out. Either way, God uses Ebed-Melech to get Jeremiah out of the mud. And then there's this detail I just think is wonderful. Uh, you've got all these people who don't care about Jeremiah at all, 
how much does Eben Melek care about Jeremiah? It's not just that he wants to get him out of the mud. Uh, there are two whole verses here about how he goes and rounds up as many rags as he can find because he doesn't want Jeremiah to get rope burn in his armpits. Uh, he knows that yanking Jeremiah out of the mud is going to take quite the tug. Jeremiah is this old man down in the mud. And so Ebed Melech tells him, put all these, these rags under your arms to pad the ropes. And then Ebed Melech and those 30 men pull Jeremiah out of the mud. Not that everything's great for him yet, he still is under arrest. But did Jeremiah die that horrible death in the mud pit like his enemies had planned for him? Uh, no, he didn't. And if you'd say, where does the story go next? This is chapter 38. Chapter 39 is when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians just like Jeremiah had predicted. Surprise, surprise, right? It would have gone a lot better for them if they had surrendered ahead of time, but they didn't, and the amount of suffering that God's, God's people went through then was just horrible. Jeremiah, as far as we know, he's the author, wrote about it in Lamentations, and it's horrible. The stuff they went through when the Babylonians came. God had said that would happen. Uh, and as far as Ibn Malik, uh, he shows up one more time in chapter 39. God has Jeremiah go to him with a word of God just for him. Let me read that for you. This is from chapter 39. Go to Ibn Malik the Cushite and say, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says I am about to fulfill my words against the city through disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. So one more thing we know about Ibn Malik the Cushite is he didn't do this for Jeremiah just because it was the right thing to do. He did it because this was an act of his faith in the one true God. How he, this black man from Africa, came to believe in the true God when so many of the Jewish people had abandoned him. Who knows, God's grace in his life. But God's message to Ibn Malik is, I will save you. It's not that he's going to be spared. He had to live through the fall of Jerusalem too. God's message to him is, even as you bear a cross in this world, I will be with you, I will save you because you trust in, you trust in me. And whether it's Jeremiah or whether it's Ebed Malik or whether it's you and me, that is God's promise for us too. Peter says, don't be surprised when the cross comes. It's going to come. But then don't give up hope as if God's abandoned you. God loves you and he is able to save you in the end from that cross, from this world, to himself in heaven. So if I go back to that concept of a, of a cross, I don't know what that is in your life. I'm trying to be pretty vague about it because the thing that you, you face is probably different from what I face or what the person over here faces, but we are the same in this. As people of God, we trust in him. As people of God, he tells us to expect we'll have a cross. And as people of God, God promises that he will be with us that in the end, whether we see it here or not, we'll look back and say, even that was a blessing from the God who loves me. And so today, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, may that be exactly what we do. That rather than running away from it or giving up under it, 
that you and I take up the cross that God sends into our lives and we follow our Savior Jesus. Amen. Let's now rise as we confess our faith in him. Today we're singing our confession of faith with the song, You Are God, We Praise You.